This is my radio show, and today I'm pleased to welcome uh, Karen uh, Smith from from Massachusetts at the moment. Um, She was a retired professor of history and spent most of her teaching career in Kansas. Uh, She's taught college students in Massachusetts, and also with my last guest, Tim, uh, the book in the, the 1960s that um, Karen co-edited with Tim on that book, which was uh, many stories about the 60s. She's also published books and articles on American women, American writers and general history. And she's also been to England and Ireland, lived all over the United States and even in East Africa. So uh, welcome, Karen. Thank you. It's good to be here. Thanks. Thanks for coming on. And uh, you're going to tell us about your your first story, is that? Sure, sure. I want to maybe say a little bit about how the book came about. Yeah. I think that's a good story in itself. Um, Tim and I were friends fairly briefly back in 68, 69. I remember that I dragooned him and his brothers into helping me move an apartment from one place to another. He was a very sweet boy. He was a very, very sweet boy. He was a lot younger than I was. Uh-huh. Um, we were friends. We, we, uh, we were actually in a, um, a summer school class together. Uh, it was a class which I absolutely hated, but I had to take it in order to get admitted to my graduate school. It was statistics. Anyway, long story short, Tim got an A. I got a D. I barely survived, uh, but we were friends uh, through all that. And then, of course, you go your separate ways, and um, uh, so I had not not seen or heard from him in, I don't know, 30 years, however long it was. It was a long time. Anyway, then he sends me an email because he's good at finding people, and we start up this correspondence. And what did you do after I stopped seeing you? And what did you do? And we had these great stories. His was the story of being number one in the Vietnam War draft lottery. Yeah. And so on my and then becoming a conscientious objector. And then my story was that I just went completely off the rails. I dropped out of graduate school and I joined a religious cult. And so that is the story that I wrote about was my participation in that religious cult. And I just I want to say before I tell my story and maybe the stories of a couple of the other contributors to our book, mm. that um, when I tell my students that I did this and these people did that, there were, they were astonished that young people in their late teens or early 20s would be f- feel comfortable taking a detour from a life plan, which would include further education and a per- start in a profession or a job or whatever. They couldn't, you know, they were so driven in their own tracks to go to college uh, and then either go to graduate school or some other kind of program and get moving with their lives and get married and have kids and go back to the hometown. I mean, this is partly because these were Kansas students, and so they're fairly conservative. And they were also first what we call first-generation college students. In other yeah. words, first people in their families to go to, uh, to college. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they didn't want to mess it up. And they couldn't understand, really, the privilege that people like Tim and I came from 
where we could become educated and then say, okay, I'm not going to do anything with this for a while. <laughs> so um, that's what we did. And I know in my case and in the case of some of our other contributors um, that we just took detours from our lives. There was a, a, a boy who was attending one of the most prestigious universities in the country, Columbia University in New York City. And he got involved in protests there, and he dropped out and worked for uh, an underground newspaper. And then he went and lived in a commune. So, uh, And then eventually he went back and became a journalist. But uh, anyway, so it's kind of a shock to some people to understand why we took these detours in the 60s. Mm -hmm. So my particular detour involved i was i was i had dropped out of graduate school i was living in cambridge massachusetts which is just across the river from boston and uh with a group of people and they decided that they wanted to go and join a religious group in london right. and i thought okay that'll be an adventure but before we even did that we thought okay well this is one of the religious groups there's the harry krishna there's the uh, 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 well, there's there's very all these various Asian groups. Um, there is the it, children of the I forget the names now, it, but the Universal Church, Life Church, and and there are all these possible uh, yeah. religious. Groups. This particular one was called a Process, and then it had a church name too. It was called Church of the Final Judgment. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> it seems absurd now, but anyway. Um, so we, we first, we were all in, in the Boston area. We traveled, a, took a, a van across the country. Um, it was uh, me and my boyfriend, whose name was Rhodes, and a uh, married couple, same age as us, Bob and Jerry. Rhodes had dropped out of Harvard. This gets to show you how flexible we felt our lives were. Um, and then another kid um, named Steve and three dogs. And we all piled into a Volkswagen minibus. It was just classic. We didn't actually paint flowers on it, but we might as well have. Uh, you know, and we're driving across the country. And, um, well, there's a couple of incidents, but the one that's interesting to me uh, is that we stopped in a diner in Utah. And we went in and we had breakfast or whatever we were having. And a bunch of uh, what you might call yabos followed us out to the car. And uh, I was kind of naive. I didn't really notice them. But afterwards, uh, Jerry told me, she said, they were going to beat up the boys and do who knows what to us. We are hippies. We look like hippies. And the boys had long hair, and we had, uh, uh, we were wearing <laughs> the, the beads and the long skirts. Yeah. And, and, yeah, the whole deal. <laughs> and um, and we got to the car, and the dogs looked out the window. And so the yabos melted away and uh -huh. left us alone. So we finally got out to San Francisco, and we hung out with all the various hippie types on the streets, and we, we visited uh, the Hare Krishna. We visited the Satanic Church, which turned out to just be a kind of a joke. You know, it had all this terrible reputation, but it was clearly, you know, this guy was a descendant of, in some ways, a, an intellectual descendant of Ambrose Bierce and other cynics. Oscar Wilde, and so uh, he had slapped together this this church, which was basically the idea was to be against everything. Yeah. Um, so we we saw through him, and uh, 
we eventually came back uh, at the end of the summer of 1969, and we took a ship to uh, to England. Uh, and I think one of the things that is hard for people nowadays to understand, when you think of going on like the Queen Mary or the QE2 or something across the Atlantic, it cost mm. thousands and thousands of pounds, right? Mm. It was the same as airfare in those days. And we could take a lot more stuff with us, including the three dogs. <laughs> so we, yeah. we, we paid our tickets and we took, it was, a, I forget what, it was a German ship. But anyway, it stopped in Plymouth and then we went to London uh, where we proceeded to try to join this group. Mm. which had, this group had a uh, headquarters in Mayfair, very posh. They had the whole, sort of those huge, um, uh, tall townhouses in Mayfair. Yeah. And in the basement, they had their club. And you had to sort of join the club, because I think that was pretty standard. It might still be, if you're going to be going to regularly to a club, which is a little bit iffy, uh, you have to be a member to get in. Mm -hmm. Or it might just be a way they have of raising money, I don't know. So we joined this club, and we went in, and... Um, I was fascinated. All these people in these black uniforms with a silver cross. Tim said it was upside down cross. It wasn't, but it was a silver <laughs> cross and, and, and little satanic symbols on the lapels of their shirts. And uh, they were charming. They were self-possessed. And I immediately thought, oh, I want to be like that. I didn't <laughs> think about the religion. I didn't think about anything except that I wanted to be with these people. And so over it took us about six or eight months to join. And we all had little little jobs uh, uh, to support ourselves, and we lived in a cheap apartment together. Uh, and then there were, I think, four of the five of us joined, and then some other people who were around at the time joined. And uh, I, describing the religion would be complex, but the idea was that the deity was consisted of four Four entities. There was a Jehovah, um, there was Christ, there was Lucifer and Satan, and they made a distinction between the two of those. Mm -hmm. So the Lucifer was actually sort of, as his name implied, a light bearer, and Satan was Satan. He was both evil uh, and sort of high level. It's, it's, anyway, it was a complicated religion, and it had come about, the group had actually started as an offshoot of Scientology. Oh, wow. So among the many things that they did was they uh, they did uh, almost like therapy exercises. So you'd uh, you'd join this group or you'd come to visit it and you would pay for a session of uh, uh, so-called telepathy or a session of uh, 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 interpersonal uh, activity uh, interaction. So you could become a stronger person, very much like Scientology uh, in those days. But then they had added this religious aspect to it. So it was a, a church, and it was a therapy uh, organization, and it, it helped you to grow, presumably. Um, and then how did they support themselves? They sold magazines on the street, and they, and they also took donations. And so once I was, was a member, that was me out on the street trying to uh, raise money to support the group that way. Sure. There were... Uh, and there were not a lot of us. There was at that time there was a, a chapter in London and a chapter in Paris, and I think all told maybe forty people. And the two leaders were a married couple who who sort of burst out of Scientology with a few followers, uh, and they were they were the leader, and we called them <laughs> the teacher and the oracle. 
<laughs> and they were the leaders. And uh, the teacher was, he wrote all the doctrine for the group. So anyway, my adventures in this group, having joined and had a new name, I, they named me Sister Meredith. Mm. And Rose was named Brother Alexander. And let's see, Jerry was Sister Bethany. And Robert was, I'm forgetting his name. Anyway, so we were all sent to the United States to try to open up new fields. And so eventually, at its height, the organization had, I think, five or six chapters. There was one in New York, one in Boston, one in Chicago, one in Toronto, one in New Orleans, and uh, there was one in Miami. So the whole sort of eastern part of the country mm. was covered. And we would go out on the streets every day, and we would raise, raise our money, and we would live uh, communally, uh, girls in one room, boys in another room. Uh, it was very strictly celibate. Uh, you were not allowed to have sexual relations. You weren't allowed to drink. Um, you could smoke 10 cigarettes a day. <laughs> this would be amazing to Americans, because in, in, in the United States, you don't buy packs of 10. In England, we could in those days. Can you yeah, still get a right. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so that was kind of the, the British idea of having a half ration of cigarettes. And, uh, you know, they fed us. They, they had odd ideas about food um, because uh, we had very little money for groceries, but then they gave us all these expensive vitamins and protein drinks that we would have. Uh, so it's just – and then they took very good care of our image – so we always had uniforms, clean clothes, haircuts, makeup, the whole thing, uh, so that when we approached people on the street, we didn't look like panhandlers. Oh, right. Yeah, they yeah. very care of our, uh, how we presented ourselves. And so while I was, uh, uh, I was in Chicago for a while, I was in New Orleans for a long time. And in New Orleans, uh, we, because the, the city was fairly small, we took trips to other cities and all throughout the South of the United States to uh, Atlanta, Georgia, to Chattanooga, Tennessee, to Houston, Texas, Little Rock, Arkansas, just all around, um, and we would raise money on the streets there, and mm-hmm. we'd be gone for a week, and then we'd come back, and we'd, you know, in a station wagon. So we drove 500 miles, tumble out of the car, hit the streets, stay there until evening, and then towards the end of the day, we'd find a likely-looking person, usually a young woman. And we say, can we sleep on your floor tonight? <gasps> and they often said yes. And in fact, in all the, when I was a trip leader for several years, we never had to sleep in the car. I always found us a place. And often there were nice people. They'd give us breakfast. They'd let us use their shower. Um, people were amazingly trusting. I think that, that you could never do that nowadays. People don't even hitchhike anymore yeah. nowadays. It's really changed. At least in the United States, it has changed a lot. So there were, uh, that's a long time of me talking. There were some uh, internal stories that I wanted to tell you, and I can't even remember which ones I said. Ah, well, you, you mentioned about how you met your husband in the cult. You, yes. You told us what you had to eat. Um, but do you I want to tell yeah. us how you met your husband? Sure. Um I was, this was also in New Orleans, and um, one of my jobs when I wasn't out on the streets selling magazines 
uh, was I ran the internal workings of the chapter house that we lived in. So I arranged for the groceries and the cleaning and, and all of this stuff. I always thought of myself, you know, I was just like um, the housekeeper in uh, oh, all 19th century literature with a big bunch of keys around my waist. And, you know, I wasn't actually, but I felt like that. Anyway, so uh, our chapter ran a free store and a free kitchen. Um, because we did charity work as well, as well as our coffee house, which was mostly catering to uh, teenagers. But the free store, this was New Orleans. It was the 60s. New Orleans was in a very depressed condition, and there were a lot of homeless people, a lot of homeless people with alcohol problems, and they would come in um, to the free store. They'd get themselves some clean clothes. They'd get a meal. The meals were not always very appetizing. And so one day I was running the free store, and this new boy came, new young man came in. He was, um, he'd been sent down from the Canadian chapter uh, in exchange for one of our people who, uh, well, we had visa issues. We had a lot of English people who were in danger of outstaying their visas. So when that happened, we sent them to the Canadian chapter because they were English. They go to the Canadian chapter, and they'd send an American down to take their place. And so he was... He came down in place of somebody. Uh, and he came in and he was assigned to help me that day. And uh, he was really cute. He had long blonde hair. And uh, he rolled up his sleeves and he had these strong arms and he was washing dishes. And he was so good natured. Um, and that uh, by the end of that day, I thought, hmm, this is it. And it turned out it was. So that was, we were lucky. We were together in a period when the organization allowed people to get married. Uh, cynically, I believe that the reason they allowed people to get married was because of the visa issues. So uh, they would have preferred me to marry an Englishman and thereby give him a kind of a green card citizenship. Oh, right. Yeah. But I fell in love with an American and they were, I I don't know, they they let me get married anyway. So we got married Um, and uh, we are still married. Uh, We are married to the same man. His name is Chris. Uh, he was, at the time, he was Brother Jerome, um, and uh, uh, we've been together now, married for 48 years, almost half a century. Oh, that's lovely, yes. Yeah. yeah, it is. It's a good story. Mm. Anyway, another thing that happened while I was working in the free kitchen was, it, it's impossible, it's, it's hard to believe how stingy the hierarchy was about equipment and food. Yeah. Uh, especially food for the free store. We could only give away what was donated to us. So oftentimes it was some kind of a, uh, a mush, and it was at least that we always got vegetables from the, from, the fr- from the French market. So I was cutting up vegetables with the only knife that we had. The only, it was like a dairy, <laughs> so it wasn't a big knife. And this very drunken guy rushes in from the free store where he'd been getting a shirt, I guess, picks up the knife, runs out and tries to stab his friend with it because they're both completely loopy, absolutely, totally drunk, wasted, ah, sad, wasted people. Anyway, I was so mad that he took my knife that I went in and I took it away from him. (laughs) And everybody thought that was so brave. And and my kids, when I told them that story, my own children, they thought, oh, that was brave of you, Mom. You know, Am I going to really take these brownie points from my kids? <laughs> and I said, in fact, it was thoughtless and it was stupid, but it was the only knife 
the only knife we had, and I wanted it for vegetables. <laughs> so I took it away from the guy. So that's my story. And I, people still think I was heroic, but I know I wasn't. Anyway. Uh, they, they think that because just thinking about it, they was probably a lot bigger, stronger than you, weren't they? And you oh, they were huge. Yeah, you yeah. guys in their 30s and, you know, big guys. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> but they were very drunk. And they were so astonished when I took the knife away. They immediately stopped fighting with each other. And <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it was just a because fun. you had the courage to tackle them, yeah. So did you... Did you stay in the cult then for, for long? I was in for five years, yeah. And, I, and during that time, I was stationed, as it were, in uh, first in Chicago, then in New Orleans, and then in Toronto, and then in New York. And in New York, in the spring of 1974, the organization fell apart. Mm-hmm. And it fell apart because there was a schism uh, uh, the married couple who had started it and the, the teacher and the oracle, they got divorced. He mm-hmm. had been having an affair and ugly stuff. And so, and the other, the sort of next layer down of the leadership of the organization sided with her. And so they got together, those four men and her, and they made up a new religion. Like right, uh, you know, they took a lot of the elements from the old, but they couldn't take everything because the man, the teacher, had copyrighted his writings. And so they belonged to him, and they couldn't sell them or do anything else. So they couldn't use them. So they they took, um, they took, uh, they got rid of, (laughs) they got rid of Lucifer, Satan, and Christ, and so it became a Jehovian religion, which is, some of the symbols were sort of Jewish, uh, like Old Testament stuff. And I remember my husband at the time, he had finally been sent to New York to join me. They had separated us. We were married for seven months. They separated us for a year. And then they finally let him come to New York where I was. And uh, he said, this isn't real anymore for me. I'm leaving. And I want you to come with me. Mm. And I said, oh, because I would have gone along with it. I I didn't care about the religion anyway. I still liked a lot of the people. Um. So uh, uh, I said, okay, all right, you go. I have a lot of stuff to wrap up here. I had an important position. I had already become Mother Meredith. I had responsibilities. And so he went in September, early September. Uh, the way you left a, play, a thing like that, and I think this is true of the other, the other cults and periods, a lot of people snuck away in the night because they were so embarrassed and because – other people, if they were talking to people about it, would try to stop them. Well, my husband was not a coward, so he uh, he went to the leader of our chapter in New York and said, "I'm I'm leaving." And he uh, they didn't even try to talk to him about it. They um, so he left his all his you know he had uniforms. He left his regalia, his uniforms. Yeah. He dressed in an old pair of something or other, and had his his mother had sent us some bus tickets uh, t- from New York to where she lived in Amherst, Massachusetts. And so he went. And two weeks later, I wrapped things up. Uh, I said, I'm, I'm going to go. I told them several days in advance. And they tried to stop me. Mm. They really tried to stop me. They sent me to see Father Aaron. And he said, uh, you know, essentially, what's wrong with you? You're a very strange woman. <laughs> I said, okay, I'm leaving. And then they said, and this is what all cults do. 
when you try to get out, they tell you, you can't, you're never going to succeed anywhere. Uh, all of your strengths come from being part of this group. If you mm-hmm. leave the group, you lose all the strengths that you have, all the intellectual capability. Uh, you'll be nothing. You'll be nowhere. You'll have no future. That's pretty mm-hmm. heavy to lay that on a kid. And most of the people in the group were young. They were 18, 19, 20. I was 30. I had joined at 25, so I was 30. I had my education, yeah. and I knew I had. we had families that loved us. We had good educations, both my husband and me, um, and uh, we just knew that wasn't true. And mm-hmm. so one of the leaders came to try to stop me as I was getting ready to get a taxi to the bus station, <laughs> and she harangued me for four hours, mm-hmm. and I missed four buses. And then, but I held strong, and finally she gave up. And so I got into, uh, I got my stuff. I just had, you know, you have nothing. I had a suitcase, I think. And I, uh, I got uh, out the front door, and along comes, because he was there also, the guy I had joined the group with, the guy who had been named Rhodes, oh, and yeah, yeah. Um, Brother yeah. Alexander, and he puts me in the taxi. And as he closes the door, he leans his head, he said, Good for you. Ah. And I left and started my life. So that's my story. Yeah. Uh, the cult itself, uh, they continued for a while. They uh, decided that they were going to have a healing ministry, and they did a lot of hocus-pocus healing stuff. Uh, but eventually, uh, they ran out of steam, and they moved out to Utah Yeah. to... Uh, a canyon just on the Arizona border and establish an animal shelter because they'd always been very big on animals and they'd always had dogs and, 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 and cats and, and this kind of thing. So they, they developed this very large, what we call, I don't know what's called in England, uh, we call a no-kill animal shelter. Oh. Where the, the animals come and they're, you know, the veterinarians take care of them and then they're up for adoption. Um, and so they established this thing. It is now the largest no-kill animal shelter in the country. celebrities give tons of money to help support it um, and almost all the original people are gone and now it's staffed by professionals, veterinarians and clerks and uh, office managers and it's become a business operation so I think that's kind of interesting Um, for a while they tried to hide that they had they'd grown out of a religious cult but then somebody outed them on the internet and uh, so they they fessed up and said, this is what we were. We always believed in animals, and this is what we're doing now. So um, uh, there was no, you know, that's the end of that. I have never seen them. I have a friend who also left about the same time I did. She goes back down to Utah time to time to see some of the people who are still there. I have no interest. I have no interest. There were people I really liked, but it seemed to me that when it was over, it was over. Yeah, uh, I didn't feel a need to recapture it. The few people that I really cared about left, and so them I'm in touch with. (laughs) So Uh, I think people will sort of um, when you talk about cults, maybe they'll think of the extreme ones. And by the sound of it, yours wasn't too extreme. And then even when it dissolved, it went into something good. So it did indeed. It did indeed, and I give them credit for that. Um, uh, Extreme, I think. I guess what everybody thinks of Jonestown and the the people who were poisoned by the leader and died. Yeah. yeah. 
Um, but uh, I guess, well, maybe if you were an American or British or European and you adhered to one of the Asian ones like the Hare Krishna, that yeah. would seem perhaps an extreme departure. Yeah. Um, we were always safe. Um, there were, you know, there was never of any violence, um, I suppose. Uh, so that does, I think you're right. I think that means it wasn't really that extreme. But people thought we were extreme because of the way we dressed. Yeah. We had these little symbols of Satan. And, you know, they thought we're, uh, let's see, the British, the British press had a field day. They had an article called, they called us the Mind Benders of Mayfair. <laughs> and then they also uh, called us very satanic things. We were accused for a while of having inspired Charlie Manson. There's another mm-hmm. weird cult. Mm-hmm. Um, but and there was actually a lawsuit to fight that because it had been published in a book. Um, yeah. We hadn't been anywhere near Charlie Manson. It was a total fabrication. So anyway, um, uh, yeah, I think that's yeah. that. And it was, I learned a lot. I gained a lot of strength from adversity and from having to approach people in the streets and ask them for their money. Yeah. Uh, it's just strong. I wouldn't want to do it again. But so that did help. That did help. Yeah. So that's my my story uh, from that group, and since yeah. then I we came to live in in this part of Western Massachusetts. I had my kids, got a PhD, became a teacher, and now become retired. <laughs> <laughs> and and you mentioned some other things you wanted to tell me about. Yeah, yeah. You, you were saying about the story of Zora Simmons, who was a leader in the civil rights move, movement. That's a wonderful story. She, how did I find Zora Simmons? I think my mother-in-law found her. She had contributed, my mother-in-law was reading a book with her book group, and there was one uh, essay in it which had talked about being a college girl involved in the civil rights movement. And she's African-American. Her name, she started out as Gwendolyn Robinson. Mm. And she grew up in Tennessee. Uh, not wealthy, but in a in a, a sort of a, a black enclave, which uh, an unintegrated part of the city, but which was comfortable because there were not the challenges of white supremacy in that particular neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And people who lived in that neighborhood, all social classes, from laborer and housemaid up to opera singer, and she knew a whole range of of people in that small neighborhood in Memphis, Tennessee. But she, you know, she became aware of uh, of segregation and the Jim Crow laws that were part of life in the American South uh, in the 1950s and 60s. And she went to uh, the most prestigious, she got a scholarship to the most prestigious women's, black, traditional black women's college in the United States, which is called Spelman, and that is in Atlanta. And Atlanta, of course, was the headquarters of the... Uh, the Young People's Civil Rights Movement. It's where the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee started. Right. And so she, despite being threatened with being expelled from college for not behaving in a ladylike manner, by for joining restaurant sit-ins, you know what I'm talking about, the sit-ins, the mm, restaurant sit-ins. Ah, you're so young. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you, this was a thing that started in... Um, 1961, uh, restaurants refused to serve black people, uh, oh. period. They refused to serve them uh, in the same uh, restaurants where white people were eating. Yeah. Uh, 
Um, there were obviously there were black owned restaurants that served black people, but the white ones tended all throughout the South uh, to uh, just refuse to serve people, including a big chain, which I know you have in England or used to have Woolworths, right? Yeah. Woolworths always had lunch counters, right? And they did anyway in our country. And they, they were not, they were segregated lunch counters. You couldn't sit there if you were black. And so some young people, some young students in Nashville, Tennessee, some guys, uh, decided to try to challenge this custom, this aspect of Jim Crow. This was in 1960. And they went and sat at the counter for hours oh. and hours, and were, no one would serve them. The, uh, the right. people behind the counter wouldn't serve them. And eventually the police came and take them away. And so these, this activity is called these sit-ins were right. repeated all over the South in all in segregated, mostly lunch counters, not fancy yeah. restaurants, but lunch counters. And then, you know, white youth would come in and they'd pour ketchup on people and sugar and they'd harass them. Uh, and then when they finally drove them outside, they would beat them up. So it was a, it was a very brave, uh, these sit-ins were very brave things for young African Americans to do. The, an additional um, public thing was um, trying to integrate the buses. Uh, and I'm talking about the reason that they felt they could do this was because if the buses crossed state lines, they were subject to the Interstate Commerce uh, Organization of the United States. And so if you can travel on a bus in Philadelphia, from Philadelphia to Washington, D.C., then you should be able to travel from Washington, D.C. to Mobile, Alabama. Yeah. That okay. was their objective. So they would get on in an integrated bus station. Yeah. And they would travel down uh, integrating the buses as they went along. And there was a massive uh, hatred of that and a massive uh, rebellion against it by white Southerners. And they burned the buses. They beat the, they dragged the kids off and beat them. Uh, and this went on. And, and and there's President Kennedy and his brother, the Attorney General Robert Kennedy, and they're sitting there hoping they don't have to deal with this. And eventually, they're forced to uh, to deal with it. And uh, to uh, so Kennedy starts formulating uh, the Civil Rights Act. Yeah. Uh, but he dies before he's shot and killed in November of 1963, and. Uh, President, his vice president, uh, Lyndon Johnson, becomes a president, and he's the one who pushes through the Civil Rights Act and then later the Voting Rights Act. So there are now legal recourse to fight what we call Jim Crow, uh, segregation uh, in the South, wherever it occurs. Mm. But <laughs> before that happens, <laughs> there's a marvelous integrated movement of college students to the state of Mississippi, which was the worst, the poorest, the most segregated state in all of the country. Uh, and it was the poorest. Mississippi is still the poorest state in the country. Mm. Um, uh, they sent in the summer of 1964, they called it Freedom Summer, and they sent college kids down, black ones and white ones, uh, to all, all the cities and, and larger towns in Mississippi to organize uh, uh, voting registration drives because black people were prevented from registering to vote. Yeah. This is a whole history of, I'm sorry, yeah. Yeah. It, but the voter registration and freedom schools, because they wanted kids to understand uh, little black kids were not being taught anything about their own history and yeah. their own 
was. So, and the schools were terrible in Mississippi. So um, Zahara, she signed up for one of these, and she actually ended up as a project leader in Laurel, Mississippi. Uh, and the things, I mean, these, these people were threatened. They were attacked. There was one story, I think it was one of Zahara's stories, where she uh, she's living in a house with other people who are running these programs for little kids and for voter registration. And there's armed people outside shooting at them and trying to set fire to the house. Mm-hmm. They're, um, they had yeah. established a library and a schoolroom in a building that was burned down. Uh, many, many churches were burned down that summer. And there were murders. There, the famous murders were uh, three young men, civil rights workers, who went down early to Mississippi just before this onslaught of American northern American college students came down. And they were, they were killed and they were buried and it took a long time to find what had happened to them. Anyway, so uh, she was pretty brave, and she tells this story uh, very, very well. So I had her come to my campus, and we had her there for a couple of days. She spoke to some classes, and then I organized a big public event for her uh, at a theater in the downtown of uh, the town where I was teaching. And um, we advertised it very well, and... It was, we packed the audience, and she told her story to them. And it's, it's hard to explain how, if you're not a historian or you're not a student of history, how many people were so shocked and amazed to hear this story, which mm-hmm. had happened within just a few decades of their own lives. Mm-hmm. So, um, so I was, I was we, really pleased. Sorry, I was just, just going to say, we've got, like, the... Black, black rights going on at the moment, isn't it, with what's happening? And so there's a lot of uh, programs on the TV telling about, you know, the old days and, and like you're saying, giving a hint of those uh, things yeah. that used to happen back then. I didn't know that the problems in Britain were, uh, there are race issues, there are race issues that are happening. Um, so was it COVID or yeah. the economy? No, I'm, I mean, it's more with um, part of black history, um, black rights that's being displayed, especially on BBC Two. They're doing a lot of programs oh, a little okay. while ago yeah. Yeah, about that. Yeah, and, well, when I lived in England in 1981, and there were big riots in Brixton. That was a famous period of uh, oh, yeah. riots in 81. That was also during the hunger strikes in the Irish prison. So it was quite a, and the engagement of Charlie and Di. It was quite, it was quite a year. That yeah. Was, yeah, but the, yeah. The, but then, so Zora had a, it, it filled out and she had loads of people there. and Yes, and, and there's public events. And so I, that would have been, oh, I can't remember when that was, probably 2010, maybe 2011. Yeah. And she's still teaching. Still living, still teaching. I was going to say, does she ever write her story, or or does she ever? Her story is in my book. Oh, and she was interviewed. She's been in a number of films that you know, documentary films that that tell the story because it's a great story, and uh, uh, the fact that she was almost expelled from college, and that her parents disowned her for a while for her civil rights activity because they Mm -hmm. were, there were a lot of people who just felt, don't poke the bear. Just leave it alone. Yeah. Don't try to rebel against this. But she did. And so she lost lost her family for a while. They ultimately were proud of her and reconciled. Um, mm-hmm. 
And she never finished at that college. She had to finish her degree elsewhere. She has a PhD now. <laughs> she's, she's, she's really, really great. And she has a daughter who's a filmmaker. Oh, that's right. Yeah. And then, so you, you've got another one, another woman, is it? Jade? I don't know no, how to Jade pronounce Jade is actually a man. Um, uh, that's his nickname. Uh, his name is Nyok Huyn, uh, and I'm not good at Vietnamese pronunciation. And I'll, I'll make this a, a fairly quick one. He, um, Jade was a little boy during the Vietnam War. And he lived in a village that was uh, bombed by the Americans. Uh, his One of his sisters was killed, his little eight-year-old sister. But the rest of the, the family survived. And I haven't reviewed this story, but uh, eventually he's a student. After the war, the communists have taken over all of Vietnam. It's become a communist country. And uh, he's arrested and sent to a what they call a re-education camp. Right. Which is basically just trying to, you know, get the rebel out of the person and make him toe the, the communist line in those days, uh, the Vietnamese line. And they, but they, they worked these people hard. It was a prison camp. Uh, they fed them very little. He says he can remember trying to find insects to eat. Oh, uh, He would eat the insect. He was so hungry, he'd just pop it in his mouth and then it was wiggling its way down. Oh, yeah. So he uh, he decided he, he'd had enough of that. He was released from the prison and he went and found some family members that were still alive in, in um, I think in Saigon? I think so. Yeah, I think he was in Saigon. Um, to try to get away. Yeah. Uh, and so they eventually, it took three tries, but they found a boat. And if you remember any of the pictures of these boat people crammed mm. into these tiny, unseaworthy boats, trying to get away. I mean, you see it nowadays. You see it in the Mediterranean. Yeah. All the refugees trying to cross to uh, Europe uh, from North Africa or from the Middle East. Uh, and these terrible, unseaworthy, overcrowded boats that capsize or whatever. Anyway, he got in one of those, and they ended up in Thailand, um, having been... Uh, almost destroyed by a boatload of pirates. And they get to Thailand, and they're in uh, a refugee camp in Thailand, uh, from which people were encouraged to apply to various countries to get asylum and begin a process of uh, becoming a member of that society. So he, I think one of his friends went to Germany, another friend went to Italy, um, and he went to the United States because he had a brother that was already there. And then he tells the story of how he, how he finds himself and gets a job and uh, eventually gets married and gets a college degree. He wrote his story in a book, which was um, uh, listed in um, uh, American Book Awards uh, in the year it came out, and that would have been probably about 98 or something like that. So he, he was a success story. He's an interesting guy. He, um, he taught for a while at universities. Um, and then uh, he had an, uh, what we call an MFA from Brown University, a Master of Fine Arts. He's oh. a creative writer. So yeah. in order to get a university position as a creative writer in this country, you don't need a doctorate, a PhD. You could just have a master's degree. So he did that for a while. They got fed up with that. And he <laughs> went to live in Mexico. And he is an acupuncturist. He trained as an acupuncturist. Oh, right. He's living in, in the Yucatan as an acupuncturist. And he oh. writes to me every Christmas, and, and we write back. Yeah. So, 
that's a long trajectory for a man, a man from Vietnam. That's a very, it wasn't a comfortable story. He couldn't find his place. So anyway, yeah. um, I tried. It's and not your standard immigration story anyway. No. How, how did you get to know him? Sorry, I didn't know. How did I find him? Uh, I, how did I find him? Maybe it's possible that Tim found him. Oh. Um, it's possible Tim. We we sort of handed off. You know, we we each found people through connections to other people. Yeah. Um, I think maybe I saw a review of his book, and oh. then I contacted him, and he was. It was a summer. I was here in Massachusetts. I wasn't out in Kansas in the summer, and I went and saw him in Vermont, and I persuaded him to tell a small version of his of his book for our uh, for our book. And he did. And he wrote beautifully. Yeah. And did you did you tell us how you and Tim got to do the book? Did I? T- uh, oh, well, yeah, that he, he he found me by email. He was looking up old friends, and um, I was just thrilled. I thought, oh, here's this boy I used to know. <laughs> and yeah. A successful businessman. He's married. He has kids, and so um, we wanted to you know find out about each other, and then. Uh, he told me his story, I told him my story, and we said, there must be a lot of other stories like this out there, and that's how we started to find people. And it was, you know, he one of his stories is from a neighbor, one of my stories is from a guy that used to work with my husband, and he was the one who, Tim told you about Sam Lovejoy, who knocked down the nuclear power uh, testing yeah. tower, yeah. well... This boy, this this man, Steve, who worked with my husband on a newspaper, he knew Sam, and he got Sam to, uh, Sam didn't really want to write for us, even though he told Tim he would, mm-hmm. but he was willing to be recorded, and so Steve recorded him and wrote it up for us, yeah. in exchange for a plane ticket to somewhere, I had to bribe him, <laughs> so, so those are good stories, and um, the last story, I won't tell you the whole thing. It's about my own brother, who was somebody that I recruited because my brother in the 60s joined the Peace Corps. Uh, you familiar with the Peace Corps? Well, I think they're British it, equivalents. Is it, I mean, um, there's the, oh, I forget what they're called, like in Europe, aren't they, where they go around the army, but they're for peace. Is that like the red and white cross, the white cross? No, it's not a medical thing. It's... um. Uh, are you thinking about Doctors Without Borders, groups like that? Yeah. Yeah, medicine, uh, yeah. Now, those are, there's wonderful international peacekeeping uh, organizations. But this was, um, these were, most of the people who went through the Peace Corps ended up being teachers or they did uh, work in health, health clinics. I have okay. a friend here in this town who worked in a health clinic in Tunisia. But my brother, because we had spent a year in Africa as children, um, and he loved the African country that we were in, which was Kenya. Mm. And he he, uh, he wanted to join the Peace Corps. And he says right in the front of his article, I joined the Peace Corps to dodge the draft. Mm. Now, I know that Tim told your listeners all about the draft the other day. Yeah, so you that's know right. what that is. Well, my brother, Tim got number one out of this drawing, so he would have had to go if he hadn't done what he did. Yeah. Um, my brother got a number which was not considered safe, it was low enough, his birthday was drawn out low enough that he would have had to go to Vietnam once he finished his college. 
So he decided um, to join the Peace Corps to dodge the draft. But he was clever, and he got to go a place that he really wanted to go, which was back to Kenya. And he became, he taught in a, uh, a boys' school uh, in the up, 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 upland country of Kenya, which is where we had lived, and uh, right near where all the tea plantations were. And he mm-hmm. taught in the boys' school, and he was there for two hitches in the Peace Corps. He did, so he did two years, and then he did another two years. Um, and he, you know, he tells that story uh, and his experiences with who, you know, bright students and teaching uh, uh, a lot of students uh, long distance running because the Kenyans became famous for that. Yeah. And uh, so he was. I think my brother was kind of part of people who were encouraging the, uh, the Kenyan runners back in the day before they became the Kenyan runners. Uh. Um, Winning all the Olympics and everything, um, and so he did that, and um, and and uh, uh, he uh, he ends the story by saying, "You know, I joined the Peace Corps to dodge the draft, but I've made myself the most indelible experience of my entire life, uh, and I'm so glad that I was there." So, when I share that story with my students, and I use that story every year. I don't tell him he's my brother. Uh, and I ask them uh, what they think. And the papers that they write, they're so, they think it's so despicable that he dodged the draft. Really? I thought that is so interesting. And then I started, this was in the early days when I was teaching this, maybe 07, 08. Uh, and then as time went on into the 2010s, 11s, 12s, I'm still teaching this essay. It changes. And one guy wrote a wonderful story. At first, I really thought it was terrible that he dodged the draft. But now that I know more about the Vietnam War, I realize that he made a good decision. Uh, So there's much more sympathy with the rule breakers nowadays than I think there was even just earlier in this 21st century. So Sam Lovejoy, major rule breaker, destroyer of property, you know. And my brother, who dodged the draft, and Tim, who was a conscientious objector instead of going into the meat grinder of Vietnam. So there's much more respect and tolerance for people who rebelled uh, than there, I think, than there was. Uh, Anyway, my brother, the coda to this story is, he has a whole career as a journalist, and he uh, decides that he wants to do something for poor Kenyan students from the part of Kenya that he spent his time in to help them get proper college educations because, Mm -hmm. you know, the opportunities are still few in Kenya itself and there's still tribal differences and issues. So he and a fellow called Mike Boit, who was an Olympic runner, uh, they put together a program to help the top graduates from Every year when uh, Kenyan kids graduate from high school, they take a test, yeah. and they're scored nationally. So they would cream off the top 10 or 12 of the students <laughs> and give them intensive um, summer school uh, education, getting them ready to write their essays, application essays for American colleges, and to take the standardized tests that American colleges require, uh, yeah. what Tim, I think, called the SAT, and then there's another one called the ACT the aptitude test. Anyway, so uh, so they've been doing this now for, oh, 15, 16 years, and getting these kids into these 
top-level American schools because the kids are brilliant. I mean, they are the best students in the, the best high schools in Canada, yeah. and they're from godforsaken, impoverished, yeah. sheep-herding families in the far west of Kenya. Um, and uh, they, um, uh, they get this amazing opportunity. And so many of them go back and they work in nonprofits in Kenya, but some of them stay in the United States. They go on to graduate school. They're working for businesses. They're doing startups. Uh, and so I'm very proud of my brother. Yes. That's a really I, I, I had the opportunity. They did a CVS program about him and his, and his uh, organization called KENSAP, which was the Kenya Scholar Athlete Project. And it was one of Dan Rather's, you know, our half-hour-long shows that showed how the whole process works with my brother's program. And um, so I would, I would have them read, the students read the essay, then I'd show them the film, and I would say, look what comes of this. Look what this experience in the 60s produced in yeah. the 20th century. That is a good thing. And so... Uh, and then, of course, my graduate student, my graduate assistant, he pipes up and he said, and that's Dr. Smith's brother. <laughs> <laughs> so I was given away. I really wanted it to stay out of the equation until at least the very end. But yeah. uh, so that's, those are, you know, those are some of the stories and, uh, yeah. and, uh, that, that were in the book. Uh, and, and, you know, and I've tried to, to say a little bit about what became of people afterwards. But those 60s experiences were so formative. And yeah. we, we wrote, this is a good book. I'm still really proud of this book that we put together. And just, just remind me, because give a shout out for your book again, because like. All right. Oh, oh right. It is. The, uh, <laughs> That's the yeah, cover. Time it was, American Stories from the 60s. 60s. Published yeah. by uh, Pearson Prentice Hall. Um, and uh, the publication date is 2008. And we haven't revised it. And it's still out there. It's expensive. What did Tim say? You can get it as an audio book? Yeah, that's it. Or oh, to okay. download it was the cheapest way. The cheapest way to do it, yeah. yeah. Second-hand books, isn't it? Yeah. 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 Uh, and then uh, only a couple of questions. Well, it is, uh, like you were saying about Vietnam, I know over here we had the uh, song 19 which was a song about most of the people going into Vietnam were only 19. And then there was a program as well showing how hard it was for the Americans, you know, really difficult war, and it was just really like madness to keep going in. It was but, insane. Yeah. How, was how old were your students that you taught, and were they all the same ages even when they went through that stage of changing? My students were college age, which usually in the United States is 18 to 21, oh. four years. And I mostly had the 18-year-olds because mine was an introductory level course. Um, and so they, yeah, they could identify. Uh, certainly the draft lottery made sure that everybody was 19. Yeah. Because that was when they pulled your name out of the, the number out of the fishbowl. And if you were 19 and uh, it was September 14th and you were 19, you were going. Uh, except if you were Tim, who was clever. <laughs> so, um, the war, I don't, I think Tim was explaining it a bit yesterday. What we called it was a war of attrition. In other words, it wasn't a war like World War II, where people are pushing into territories and pushing back and 
trying to regain territory. This yeah. was all about how many people you could kill. Yeah. And so it was, you know, it was just so demoralizing and, and so horrible to be fighting a war as stupid as that, this yeah. war of attrition. Um, I don't, my students often had fathers who had been in Vietnam. Uh, and they would tell me, you know, my father won't talk about it. Yeah. Because he had PTSD and he couldn't, he couldn't articulate how horrible it had been. I heard that again and again. And these were students in the Midwest where they're very proud of the military. Mm-hmm. And they're very supportive of American military actions. Although nowadays, not so much. Mm-hmm. Yeah, not so much. You know, there's mm-hmm. resentment about Afghanistan. There's resentment about the idiocy of Iraq. But these these kids, you know, whose fathers were in Vietnam, whose grandfathers were in Korea, or maybe even if it was a very old grandfather, had been in World War Two. Yeah. I used to tell a wonderful story about my own father-in-law, a World War Two story, uh, which was a fantastic story. But there are legions of those stories out there. Yeah. And so I, uh, what struck me most was that the, they couldn't get their dads to talk about it. They wouldn't talk about it because of what they'd seen. Yeah. yeah, but they'd experienced it. Yes, who, who died so, right next um, to them? Yeah, yeah. Um, breaking up a bit here. Yeah, me, me too as well. Well, okay. maybe we'll we'll end up on that then, and I'll say, uh, Karen Smith, that's been uh, lovely for sharing your story. All right, um, I hope it hasn't been too much of a history lesson. I tend to do that, but there's a lot to fill in. Um, yeah, no, it, it gives the flavour. I think when you're listening on the radio or you're listening, then if you're not quite sure about something, it even adds to the depth of it. No, that's, really? That's fine. Yeah. Okay, great. Okay, good. Good. It was lovely speaking with you. I've really enjoyed it. Thanks. So I'll, I'll put some comments at the end about the book. and uh, Thank you. And we'll send the uh, mixed cloud up to you afterwards. And... Uh, go from there yeah all right thank you so much okay i'll check it out